Hello, and welcome to this episode of Science Fiction Meets Natural History. I'm Dr. Dan Byrne-Smith. I'm a senior lecturer in fine art theory at Chelsea College of Arts, and I'm also currently the Horniman Museum Art, Design and Natural History Fellow. In the previous episode of this podcast, I began to talk about why, for me, fossils have a quality about them that relates to science fiction. Fundamentally, this is about a modern understanding of time. Our understanding of fossils emerges out of modern conceptions of time that overlap with the emergence of science fiction as a field of speculative thinking. The fossil helped to transform the idea of time in Western thought. By the late 19th century, the future had become a theme addressed by speculative forms of fiction, with time travelling entering into the realms of popular imagination through the publication of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells in 1895. I'm interested in how fossils, housed in museum collections, might become tools. By this I mean that if historically fossils transformed abstract principles of Western thought, how might they continue to change, or at least inform or modify how people might think? In this episode I want to explore the incomprehensibility of the processes and durations involved in fossilization. Conceptually, These processes offer ideas of time that are outside of the realms of everyday lived experience. The Horniman has fossils that you can come and see, but the vast majority of its collection is not kept at the museum building in Forest Hill, but at the Museum Study and Collection Centre, or SCC. My name is Dr. Emma Louise Nichols and I'm the Deputy Keeper of Natural History at the Horniman Museum and Gardens. And could you describe where we are right now? Yeah, we are in the most magical room at the SCC building, which is the Fossil Room. Um, The building, in order to describe this room, um, to set the scene, the building used to be a boys' school back in the day, and so this room was a cloakroom. It's sort of down in a basement. The ceiling is very low. Um, the pillars, uh, very thin, single beam pillars holding up the roof, uh, to, well, forming some form of structural spot, have got these um, little wooden bits where presumably there would have been uh, racks going across with coat hooks on them. Um, so the room is very sort of claustrophobic to some people. Uh, I think it's fantastic because it's full of all these cabinets of fossils. It's um, a very old school way of um, housing your fossils that if you built a brand new museum you would not house your fossils like this. I think the reason that fossilization is so difficult to understand is because it's not a single process. Lots of different things can happen and lots of different things result. so a bone say a modern bone uh when it's buried and sediment washes on top um as the bone becomes deeper and deeper and deeper the pressure of the overlying sediment creates uh uh, pressure and temperature um what that does is 
groundwater, so water flowing through the ground underneath the surface of the land, um, washes through all of this sediment and washes against this bone. And it can do several things. Um, one of the things it can do is there are minerals within that water that will penetrate the cavities of uh, the bone. Bone is full of cavities and over time the pressure and the temperature uh, and a long period of time ends up solidifying both the minerals within those cavities and the mud or sand around it. That's called lithifying so it, it's now it's now lithified rock it's no longer sediment um, and so in that scenario millions of years later uh, when this now fossil uh, comes to the surface it still has some of the original material albeit altered you've got the the matrix we now call it which is everything that encases the bone the rock that encases the bone and then you've got the bone itself has now hardened and become very heavy because it's also now full of these minerals. But the minerals have come from the groundwater, so it's not necessarily the same stuff that's encasing it. Another thing that can happen, if there's acid, if, 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 the, if the groundwater is acidic, it can actually dissolve the bone, in which case what you'd end up with, depending on the order and how things occur, uh, the, the end result is uh, a bone that's completely changed its chemical composition into the minerals that have washed into it. Does that make sense? Yeah, these are really extraordinary processes Absolutely. that <laughs> I find very hard to get my head around. It's difficult, it's really hard and that's why uh, when you explain it to a child you would say something gets buried and over a long period of time it washes away leaving a mould and then that gets filled with um, sand and they both harden and then you pop out a mould of the bone um, and that's the easiest way of explaining it and that can happen but it's one of many 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 different scenarios. The, the burial that I was referring to we're talking we're not talking about just a bit of heat that you're, you or I could withstand. We're talking major heat. And we're not talking time as in our lifetimes. We're talking major time. So one of the things people ask me a lot is how long does it take to fossilise? That's also a very difficult question to answer because, again, it depends on the environment. Um, <clears throat> as a result of that, we get what's called subfossils. Um, so you've got some examples. I do. I brought some lovely things out to show you. Um, so, well, I'll tell you about this first. So this is an internal mould of a nautiloid. Now, nautiloid, you know, the nautilus, uh, there's one species still exists today. They're beautiful orange and white shells um, that swim around vertically in this, show you a good side, in this uh, orientation. Um, so this is the internal mould of the shell of a nautiloid. So what has happened is the shell has been buried, sediment has washed into it, and then at some point, whether the shell was fossilised or not, we don't know, uh, but at some point that shell has disintegrated, maybe it's destroyed in some, in some way, or just broken up and washed away. And what we have now is a, uh, an internal cast, essentially. So those lines you can see on it are 
where the chambers would have divided. So, so this is a relatively straightforward one to sort of describe, yes. get your head around the process involved yeah. in, in yeah. how this was made. And this sort of fits that yeah. child's description yes, of, of exactly. how is a fossil made. Exactly. And in terms of time scale, are, are we looking at a smaller time scale than other fossils or, or would this take even even longer? So because paleontologists get asked a lot about um, how long does it take to make a fossil uh, and what is the youngest fossil, all of these things are extremely difficult to answer and so paleontologists have cunningly come up with um, a, uh, a sort of a arbitrary cutoff. 10,000 years is what paleontologists have arbitrarily assigned to fossilization process in order to create a fossil. It is obviously a lot more complicated than that. So if a bone was buried for 100,000 years, so far, far beyond the minimum requirement of time, but it's not hot enough, it's not deep enough, the, you know, the environmental conditions are not right, it won't fossilize. It might start to fossilize, but maybe 100,000 years isn't enough time. It needs longer. It's like cooking a cake at a lower temperature. It will take longer to become a cake. So here, <laughs> I have a subfossil. Uh, this is the tooth of a mastodon. Uh, let me get it out. I'm going to, I'm, this needs rehousing, so I'm actually going to split this to get it out. <laughs> So you can see that this box is not something that we would use in a, a normal museum collection. This is not acid-free conservation grade. No, it looks like something you would see in an elderly relative's house, yes. maybe. <laughs> it's a uh, so. sort of shiny, reflective-covered cardboard. Reminds me of Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> so this presumably is one of Bennett's original random boxes he's thrown a fossil that he found in. Um, so, <clears throat> this is a mastodon tooth. If you'd like to hold it, you're more than welcome. So you can feel it's quite heavy. It's heavy, far yes. heavier than I was expecting. Great, so that is a perfect reaction that you would want to have from someone who you're trying to demonstrate the difference between a fossil and a, a modern mm. specimen. Yeah, so this is quite a good example of a sub-fossil. So it's something that has not fully fossilized so it can be extremely difficult to tell the difference between a fossil and a subfossil so, and so a subfossil and a real bone. This is partly bone and tooth. Yeah. Tooth. It's not entirely replaced by other minerals. Exactly, yeah. And it's because it's very young. So what's this specimen you have here? So this is an entirely different type of fossilization. Um, you'll notice that this is very faint. I'm going to get it out of the bag so you can have a better look. Uh, so what we're looking at... Um, so it use... looks like a tile. Yes, it does. Exactly. Yes, I was going to say, for those who can't see, it's a, it's a square of matrix. But yes, a tile is exactly what it looks like. Um, so if you uh, want to hold it and sort of move it around in the light, you'll be able to see, I hope... So I can see pretty clearly... Um, Especially being able to move it around, 
I can see the very uh, a faint outline of what looks like a winged insect, like, a, like yeah. a dragonfly. Yes, exactly, hit the dragonfly. So this is an example of what we call exceptional preservation. So the reason that this is so impressive and so sought after um, is because you can see soft body parts. There are no bones there. I mean, it's an invertebrate. There wouldn't have been bones to start with, but there's nothing left of the exoskeleton. There's nothing um, uh, hard fossil there. This is all an imprint. And so the, the, the reason that this occurs, the reason this is able to occur, is because it was buried very rapidly. So there was no chance of predation, there was no chance of wind or water ruining the insect's body before it was uh, buried by sediment. The insect itself has obviously disappeared, all we've got left is an impression. The reason that the slab has been split so perfectly is presumably there was uh, some kind of weakness in the rock. So you can get loads of different things that are preserved in this way. Fish, for example, are very good, but you often get part of the, 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 the bones, the skeleton, has been fossilised itself, and that itself forms a bit of a, a weakness in the rock, yeah. whereas this is just incredible. So e each of these fossils relates to the death of a, a particular individual creature, but um, what role does the idea of catastrophe play in how we think about fossils and their history as a field of study? Uh, catastrophes are very famous in paleontology because they wiped out lots of things that we really like, like dinosaurs, non-avian, obviously. Um, uh, there have been several mass extinctions, uh, five. We're currently in the middle of the sixth one, as people famously say, and accurately so. Um, but obviously that's human-made. Uh, so catastrophes have wiped out many, many very, very cool animals. Um, obviously, had they not done, then after each catastrophe, new life took off in another direction, or, you know, obviously some survived from the previous, uh, pre-catastrophic era. Um, yeah, catastrophes are very important in the, in the evolution of all life, really. Can this historical idea of the catastrophe be something that can be communicated to audiences via an engagement with fossils? Yeah, I think so. Um, so the, the four specimens that we've got in front of us, or four, four groups of animals we've got in front of us, uh, two of them are extinct. Mastodons and ammonites are extinct. We, we will never see one living, ever. Uh, Nautilus, there's only one species left. Dragonflies, we've got lots of. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, a mastodon is very similar to an elephant, so you can communicate that in a very easy way. You can use a comparative analogue of the elephant, a, mon a modern uh, species to compare it with. Uh, other things like Stegosaurus, like, what is a Stegosaurus? If you didn't have a picture of one and you found some random bones, some random armour, a tail spike, say, you wouldn't be able to piece that back together unless you had the whole thing, because there's just nothing like that anymore. Talking to Emma about fossils and thinking about catastrophes and extinctions makes me think that the idea of what fossils might do as tools seems clearer. One of the odd things about fossils is how easy they are 
to take for granted, to assume that they are understood, somehow graspable or comprehensible. Yet the more I think about them, the stranger they seem. This strangeness is the thing. I'm interested in whether fossils can help change thinking if they have powers of cognitive estrangement, that quality assigned to science fiction by the literary critic Darko Suvin. Can that estrangement help us to try to imagine what it means to be living through a period of mass extinction caused by humans? Science fiction can turn the normal environment of the reader or viewer into something strange and unfamiliar. Science fiction can challenge what is regarded as a given truth. It can undermine assumptions about reality. I believe this is a profoundly important thing, and it is one of the things I most value about science fiction, and maybe fossils can function in this way too. Maybe they can continue to help to change the ways in which humans think. One of the themes that has started to emerge during my fellowship at the Horniman is thinking about thinking. This is to think about relations between imagination and knowledge, and between imagination and action. How might we think more about the ways we think, and what might that lead to? How does thinking about the idea of fossils as related to catastrophe lead to action? How does that lead to change?